morning, everyone. Hope you're well, made it through the rain or safely. Um, for those of you who don't know me, I see a whole number of faces that I haven't seen before. Uh, my name's Steve, and uh, I lead the church here. And I'm delighted that we're continuing a series this morning looking at encounters with God. Uh, our theme all the way through this term is looking at different people in the Bible who've had encounters with God. And uh, that's not just for academic interest. It's because God wants to meet with us, and that means we have encounters with him, uh, even this morning. I trust that many of us encountered God in our worship, but the day is yet young. This morning, we are turning back a few chapters in Genesis to uh, Genesis 27 and 28. In our series so far, we've looked at Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Abraham, uh, Richard spoke about the life of Jacob last week. A few chapters further on, uh, a typo on my part led to us getting it in the wrong order. But I've decided that actually God is sovereign even over my typos. Because what we have this morning is the story of someone who has just left home for the first time and it's Freshers' Week. So I'm seeing the hand of God in that. I'm encouraged in faith. Um, I was also encouraged that after having... um, Maria had a dream last night. This morning's about dreams. Uh, it's about, we're going to read about Jacob having a dream. Bev and I uh, and Rach have been talking about um, this thing that we're going to come to before the end of the morning on the wall over there. There's a load of rocks on the wall, which probably not many people are anticipating, but Maria had a dream that when she came into our meeting this morning, there'd be rocks on the wall. So... It's good. We have prophetic people in our midst. God is speaking and bringing encouragement. I think he's with us. And we're going to read his word. So we're starting in Genesis chapter 7, uh, 27, sorry. It's going to read a few verses by way of background and then jump on into chapter 28. Um, Jacob had a twin called Esau whom he diddled. Jacob was a deceiver, a cheat, and a liar. And although what he was aiming for was something that God had spoken, which was that he would be the main inheritor of the family promises, he went about it through lying and deceit. Unsurprisingly, that led to some strife. It says in chapter 27 and verse 41, Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. He said to himself, this is after their father Isaac had died, the days of mourning for my father are near, then I will kill my brother Jacob. When Rebekah, who was their mother, was told what her older son Esau had said, she sent for her younger son Jacob and said to him, Your brother Esau is consoling himself with the thought of killing you. Now then, my son, do what I say. Flee at once to my brother Laban in Haran. Stay with him for a while until your brother's fury subsides. When your brother is no longer angry with you and forgets what you did to him, like that will ever happen, but anyway, uh, it's quite hard to forget. A misplaced inheritance, isn't it? Anyway, um, there's optimism there. A mother ought to be optimistic about reconciliation between her sons, I suppose. Anyway, she says, I'll send word for you to come back from there. 
why should I lose both of you in one day? And then, oh sorry, Isaac hasn't yet died at this point, because it says in chapter 28, in verse 5, Isaac sent Jacob on his way, and he went to Padan Aram, to Laban, son of Bethuel the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, who was the mother of Jacob and Esau. So the background to this is that Jacob has been forced to flee his home. And uh, if you go back and read through chapters 25, 26, 27 altogether, one of the things that you'll discover is that Jacob was a home-loving boy. He liked to stay around the tents. He was a domestic type. And here he is being forcibly pushed out of his home, not only the tents that he loved, but out into the countryside and off on a journey into exile. And then on that journey, roughly doing the sums, about three days into a month-long journey, God meets with him. So verse 10, this is our main passage for this morning. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord. And he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you're lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth. And you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I'm with you and will watch over you wherever you go. And I'll bring you back to this land. I won't leave you until I've done what I have promised. When Jacob awoke from his dream, he thought, surely the Lord was in this place and I wasn't aware of it. He was afraid. And he said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone that he'd placed under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called that place Bethel, though the city used to be called Luz. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, if God will be with me, and will watch over me on this journey I'm taking, and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear, so that I return safely to my father's house, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house, and of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. Now then, this was Jacob's first encounter with God. And there is no sign in this passage that he was looking for this encounter whatsoever. 
the story that we've had so far has been a story of him as a deceiver and a cheat, a liar, and someone who relies on his own shrewdness rather than on the Lord. There's a knowledge of the family promises that he's aiming to inherit, but nothing that suggests a personal relationship that Jacob has with God, only an interest in the property that God might give him. He had become a fugitive in a lawless land and was understandably feeling insecure, and sometimes those sorts of insecurities prompt us to pray, but there's no mention of that in the passage. It seems that God just turns up for Jacob out of the blue. And that shouldn't surprise us, because God doesn't just reveal himself to people who deserve it, to people who seek him. He does promise to make himself known to those who seek him, but he's not restricted to that. And just as well, really, isn't it? The scriptures tell us that we love him because he first loved us. It begins with his pursuit of us, in which we eventually learn to respond. There's a growing number of stories, many of you will have heard these stories, of Muslims in particular, all around the world, having dreams and visions of the prophet Isa, as he's known within Islam, whom we know as the Lord Jesus. It's a major means by which Muslims become followers of Christ, that they're praying. If they're praying properly as Muslims, praying five times a day, investing more time in prayer during Ramadan, frequently seeking an understanding of God, feeling like they don't know him fully and they want to know more and are rewarded with a vision of Jesus who comes to them and says things like, read the New Testament, which they weren't expecting. Um, One of my favorite stories, I heard this when I was in Cairo a few years ago, just because it, it just has a ring of authenticity to it. It was a Muslim background believer telling me about how he reached out in friendship to uh, a terrorist, um, an extremist, um, uh, a violent guy, um, shown him the love of Jesus. And after some time, this guy, his friend, uh, had had a dream. And in this dream, there was a fire all around him, and he feared the destruction that it would bring to him. And this is wonderfully Middle Eastern. A Mercedes pulled up. <laughs> and in the dream, the door opened, and inside was Jesus. And Jesus said, do you want to come in for safety's sake? And, you know, we'll go off. And that was how he met with Jesus. I think God speaks to people in the language of the heart. That obviously revealed something of his heart. But it's not just to those people that have sought God. God also makes himself known to the reluctant. At Freshers' Fair this week, it's interesting as we were saying to every student that we could get their attention that walked past, are you looking for a church? Are you looking for a church? Are you looking for a church? The guy opposite that was trying to sell his new night club said, um, you've got a hard sell there, haven't you? 
I said, I said, yeah, I think us and the army over there, they were trying to sell the army as well. I said, I think we all know that it's not, it's not the easiest line for the average fresh, are you looking for a church? It's interesting, the number who said, oh no, I'm, I'm an atheist. And um, what went off in my heart, I, I thought it would be just patronizing to, to tell them, given that most of them are 18 and it just seemed a little bit patronizing. I thought, well, you are at the moment. There are a few that we, ma- we gave leaflets to anyway, saying, well, you know, if you ever change your mind, and the reality is that some of them will. C.S. Lewis was an atheist of a very rigorous kind. He was determined not to become a Christian. This is his story. Those of you who are Brooks students uh, in particular ought to sympathize with this. I was going up Headington Hill on the top of a bus he says. Without words, a fact about myself was somehow presented to me. I became aware, he writes in his book, Surprised by Joy, I became aware that I was holding something at bay or shutting something out. Or if you like, that I was wearing some stiff clothing like corsets or even a suit of armour as if I were a lobster. I felt myself there and then being given a free choice. I could open the door or keep it shut. I could unbuckle the armour or keep it on. I chose to open, to unbuckle, to loosen the rain. I say choose, yet it didn't really seem possible to do the opposite. I felt as if I were a man of snow at long last beginning to melt. The melting was starting in my back, drip, drip, and then trickle, trickle. I rather disliked the feeling. He wasn't really wanting this. And didn't become a Christian there and then, but not long afterwards, he wrote this, sat in his room at Maudling College. I'd always wanted, above all things, not to be interfered with. Isn't that wonderfully British? (laughs) My highest goal is that no one would interfere with me, especially no one talking to me on the bus, or in any other way, interfering. Anyway, yet, Total surrender was demanded. The demand wasn't even all or nothing. That stage had been passed on the bus top when I unbuckled my armour and the snowman began to melt. Now, the demand was simply all. Now, you must picture me, he writes, alone in that room in Maudlin, night after night, feeling... Whenever my lifted, even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared at last came upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. It's God's initiative. God delights in making himself known 
to people who aren't looking for him. Last Sunday, I wasn't here, uh, Bev and I were at the Lees Community Church, and one of the guys that spoke out a prophetic word there was a guy called Andrew Templer, a former heavyweight boxer, great in a bar fight, um, just sorts things that we were... Uh, he, 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 and I, he and I were reminiscing last week because when years ago the church was meeting, uh, forgive me, for some reason my eyes are watering. I'm not crying. It's not like a deep awareness of the Lord's presence. It's something infectious probably. Um, Andrew and I were, rem- this is completely irrelevant. Andrew and I were reminiscing last week about how when we met in the cinema in George Street years ago, there was a guy that came in very drunk one morning and started, his name was George. He started shouting out, crucify all of you from the back, which was quite distracting. <laughs> and Steve Thomas, who's preaching next week, was preaching then and said, could, after a while said, George, could you stop? And he goes, oh, crucify you. So it was a bit like that. So Steve said, could somebody sort that out? So I stood up and started walking towards the back. And George is completely unfazed. Crucify you. Um, Andrew Templer stood up from his seat and George fled. <laughs> Andrew's a great guy. Andrew met God when his prematurely born daughter was fighting for her life in the special care baby unit. And he fell on his knees in the hospital and prayed that God would do something. He felt a hand on his shoulder and a voice say, she's going to be all right. Turned around, no one there. God had made himself known. He ended up on an alpha course not long later saying, I've met God, (laughs) I just need to know a bit more about him. Um. That headline, I've met God, I need to know a bit more about him. That would be my story as well. I first met God at the age of seven. I was in the Methodist church service. There were some prayers going on. I was overwhelmed by, I didn't know what it was. I ran out of the church. My mum came out to tell me off. I said, I just had to leave. I don't know what was going on in there. But from that moment on, when I'd met God. My life since then, my spiritual life since then, has been learning what is he like? Who is he? But I've met him. I wasn't looking for him. I was just looking forward to the boring prayers ending. Now, of course, it's also true that because God loves revealing himself to people who aren't even looking for him, that God is at work with the people around us in ways that we don't even know. I don't know how often you've got into conversations with friends and neighbours and discovered that actually they've had some really profound spiritual experiences. One of our neighbours, I got into a conversation with one of our neighbours, discovered that this person had, had, had been in the crypt at Christchurch. Um, not a Christian. Been in the crypt at Christchurch, underneath the cathedral there, and just knew that God was there. Just knew, And it's crystal clear <laughs> that, that she met with something beyond just the natural experience. Um, from time to time when we run Alpha courses, or particularly the Journeys course, which we sometimes use to he- help stimulate an interest or pick up on an interest in spiritual life that people have, it comes before Alpha, 
we come across people who have had amazing experiences of God. The two that stand out to me um, are again our church on Blackbird Lees doing um, this thing about do you believe in life after death and one of the women saying oh yes I was resurrected as a child I was in my coffin the Catholic priest came to pray for me and I got out again I believe (laughs) but I mean the people doing the course had known her for a bit she'd not mentioned it (laughs) I think of a journeys course that was run in Bayworth, a little village outside the city. And one of the videos is the story of Jellyfish Man. I don't know how many of you know Jellyfish Man, Ian McCormack, is one of the most widely told testimonies in, uh, in Christendom uh, about how he was killed by being stung by box jellyfish. And then he, after he died, and before he was resurrected, obviously he was resurrected, otherwise he wouldn't be telling the story, he he had this, vi- what, did he go to heaven? He had, a, I don't know, he had a vision of heaven. And in the journey's course, he describes it all, all the different things that he saw. Anyway, they showed part of the video, him describing it all, pressed the pause button. And uh, one of the women there, an, an elderly woman, said, oh, she said, that's all very good, she said, but he missed out the flowers. He didn't describe the flowers. Everyone said, well, she said, oh, yeah, because when I went to heaven, I, I saw all of that. <laughs> but he's not talked about the flowers. And they put the video back on. He said, now the next thing I need to tell you about is the flowers. (laughs) And uh, this woman hadn't mentioned it. She'd gone 60 years or something, never mentioned it. God is at work. People don't know how to talk about it. By and large, if you say to people things like, I had a vision of heaven... The shutters, you know, in normal, like the shutters come down. They're not priv- most people aren't privileged to first mention that conversation to a charismatic Christian who says, "Oh yes, brilliant, let's talk about it." And they learn, people learn, don't they? Just not to talk. But God is at work far beyond what we're doing. These encounters that people have, these first encounters with God, don't normally get people entirely sorted. Uh, The encounter that I had with God at the age of seven did not leave me entirely sorted. Um, It was another six years before I gave my life to Jesus. That was because it was six years before someone in the church told me how to do that, largely. But possibly also I had some maturing to do, (laughs) probably. Um, Coming back to the text, it's really clear that this encounter that Jacob had with God did not leave him sorted. At the end of the passage that I read, he's bargaining with God. So the God of heaven has appeared to him, promised him a load of stuff. He's frightened. God's really in this place. And then he says, well, God, if you do this, and if you do that, and if you do the other, and if you do something else, there's four ifs. If you do this, this, and that, then, yeah, then, then, then I think maybe, you know, okay, you can be my God then. When you've done all of these things, he's keeping God in the passenger seat of his life rather than giving God the driving seat which was you know as was coming out as it should in our worship this morning surrendering to God letting God cut off whatever he wants to letting him be he's not got there it's actually another 20 years before we get back to last week when Rich was going through the story of Jacob wrestling with it's 20 years from this passage to a few chapters later where he has finally this wrestling face-to-face encounter with God and seemingly from that 
finally gets to a place of submissive relationship with God. So these encounters don't just sort everything out. Jacob here sounds to me a little bit like the, um, the stepmother in Cinderella. The most traumatic scene in all of cinema history, at least it has been to our girls aged under seven, when the sisters rip the dress off Cinderella and um, what the stepmother has said before that is that she can go to the ball if. It's this kind of the word if being used to hold people at arm's length from all the things that they should have. And uh, God should have full control and reign in Jacob's life, but he sticks these ifs in the way. So he wasn't entirely sorted by this encounter. Speaking to someone this week whose uncle is a follower of another faith and has had reason to take a dislike to Jesus and has made a habit of bad-mouthing Jesus as the opportunity arises. So the person was talking to their uncle who said, oh, I, I, but I had a vision of Jesus. Jesus appeared to me. So, so I've stopped bad-mouthing him. Stopped saying bad things about him. Questions that this prompts are, and will you follow him? But there's a journey going on. He's not got to the point of following yet. But these encounters with God are significant springboards in our journey of learning to follow him as we should. Yeah? I'd like us to pause at this point because it would be really silly just to talk about this. We are surrounded by tens of thousands of people in this city and beyond who aren't looking for God. Some of them are, but most of them aren't. And we follow, and we know personally, <laughs> the living God who delights in making himself known to people who aren't looking for him. So I think it would be good for us to pray. Does that sound sensible? I think, yeah. Um, I'd ask Ruth if she would lead us in praying. Have we got a microphone somewhere? But why don't we, how should we do this? Who'd like to pray that we, okay, so let's, why don't we get into groups of three, four, five, so there's lots of opportunities to pray. Ruth, you can come and lead us in prayer in just a moment, but Ruth will finish off the praying, right? So let's get into some, let's pray. Look, if you're a visitor, by the way, with us, and the whole idea of you've, you, you've now just expected to suddenly pray for something with people you don't know, just, it's all right. You don't have to, just look uncomfortable, and, and we'll pick it up. It's okay. We're very sensitive people here. Um, but if you want to pray, let's get into some small, and let's pray for God to make himself known to our neighbours, to our friends, to family members, to people, whoever it is, don't we need this to happen around us, yeah? Revival ain't coming any other way, so let's pray. If you're able to, would you stand? Let's stand together. Let's pray. Yeah, Lord Jesus, I want to thank you for your love. I want to thank you that you chase us and hound us down with a love that is so strong and so fierce and so steadfast that there is nothing 
nothing that we can do that comes outside of your love. Lord, and it's this context, it's in this context that we call our family and our friends and our neighbours and our work colleagues into, into this fierce, amazing, steadfast relationship with love, with you. And I just wonder if we can take a minute to think of names and faces of families, of our neighbours, of our work colleagues, of our friends who don't know this love. And Lord, we lift up these names and these faces to you. And they're people we know and they're people we love and have walked with and lived with and shared life with. And Lord, I'm tired of reading about other people's stories. I'm tired about hearing other people's stories. I want some stories of my own. Maybe that's selfish, I don't know, but I want stories of my own to tell my kids to tell my neighbours, to tell my friends. I want my own stories of people who have encountered you, Lord. And I know that sometimes I don't open my mouth when I should. I know sometimes I don't invite people around for dinner when I should. I know sometimes I don't stop enough. So, Lord, change us. Change our hearts. But, Lord, this city needs you. Our work friends, our families, our neighbours need you, Lord. They need to know this fierce love. And Lord, I pray for the thousands of people in our city who maybe don't know anybody that knows you. And even people around the world who live in places that don't know people who don't know you. Lord, we ask that you would come in your power and in your glory and in your grace and that you would reveal yourself to them. Reveal yourself to them in dreams. Reveal yourself to them, Lord, in visions. Whatever it takes, Lord, we ask that you would come. We ask that you would come to this city. We ask that you would come to this nation, to Europe. Lord, to the ends of the earth, we ask that you would come and that you would break in. I pray you would interrupt us. I pray you would interrupt our days, interrupt our lives, interrupt our diaries, Lord, with your power, with the nudge of your spirit that says, stop, Ruth, and talk to that person next to you on the bus. Invite Sid round for dinner. Whatever it is, interrupt us, I pray, Lord, with your spirit, that we would be men and women of courage, that we would be men and women who have our stories to tell, that we would be men and women that show this fierce, fierce love, Lord, of yours. Ah. So we say, come. We say, come, because we need you. It's not about building our own empire. It's not about numbers. It's about you. It's about your glory. It's about your kingdom. It's about your name. It's for the sake of your name. It's so that the lamb may receive the reward of his suffering. That's what it's about, Lord. It's not about us. Forgive us when we make it about us. It's not about us. It's about you. So come, I ask, come. Come, Lord God, come, Spirit of God, and fall. Hmm. We just say, come, Lord. 
Come. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Great. Let's take our seats. Uh, very aware that there may be people here who, um, when I talk about encounter with God, you're not quite sure whether you've had an encounter with God ever. <laughs> um, before we're done this morning, we particularly want to make opportunity to pray for you. Um, the dream, Jacob's dream, has three different elements to it. Here we go. He had a dream. It's not just the fact that he had any old dream. It's not just that any spiritual experience will do. There are qualities of a genuine encounter with God that we see here in the story for Jacob. In his dream, he saw a stairway resting on earth, reaching to heaven, angels of God ascending and descending, and God's there as well. And the first thing that happens in a genuine encounter with God is we have a we see, we experience the fact that heaven and earth are connected. There are two mistakes that we can make as Christians. One is to think of heaven as um, so distant and inaccessible that we just get on with what is ahead of us. And whilst in our theology, we might think, oh, that, that's, I don't believe that. I know that heaven touches earth. Often as not, in our actual lives, in our practice, we just get on with doing things. We practically delay praying because there's just so much to do. And in doing that, we live life as if heaven doesn't connect to earth when actually God does come and act on the earth. The other mistake that we make is to think that to be spiritual is so, that to be heavenly is just so other from normal life that we just sort of float off into some kind of orbit in which normal life is left behind. We sometimes use the phrase super spiritual to try and describe that, where people are praying and talking about Jesus, but what they're saying, it's just really hard to see how that maps onto their actual life and makes a difference to it. The wonderful revelation that we have here in this dream is that heaven and earth are connected. That gives us the foundation for praying the Lord's Prayer, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The things are connected. The Spirit of God is active, is present and active in the world. Secondly, God reaffirms to Jacob the existing promises made to his family. So the first thing was to do with heaven and earth being connected. But secondly, there are some old promises reaffirmed. God says, I'm the Lord, the God of your fathers, Abraham and Isaac. And the next bit he says is precisely what he said to Abraham. I'll give you and your descendants this land, which is the land that Jacob was lying on. Your descendants will be very, very numerous. They'll spread out. All peoples are going to be blessed. That is what was said to Abraham. And whenever God speaks to us, 
Whenever we have an encounter with God, what he says will be consistent with what he's done in the past. There's all, which is why we can judge any report of an encounter that someone else has or any experience we have ourselves by the scriptures. Because this is what God has done. This is what we can be confident God has done in the past. And so any revelation that we have, however dramatic, however powerful, however many insights we may have, however many people may be healed or whatever, that doesn't judge adequately whether it's from God or not. There's got to be this comparison with Scripture. So when someone comes and says, I have had a dream from God, I met God in the night, and you know, he reminded me of this Bible verse and that Bible verse, and it was amazing, and, and he said it was time for me to move in with my girlfriend. We can say, no. The strength of your spiritual experience does not bring authority to an action that is counter to what the scriptures say about, in that case, sexual purity. Yeah? Nonetheless, what we also have here is a new revelation. Something is spoken to Jacob which had not been spoken before. Verse 15, where God says, I'm with you and will watch over you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I've done what I've promised you. That's a new thing. God hadn't said that to others before. And there's a fresh glimpse of what God's like and what he plans to do that's given here to Jacob. And in an encounter with God, there is always something new, something that we haven't seen before, something that we haven't understood before, something that takes us beyond just our own thinking and reflections and the teachings that others have given to us. Uh, Jesus says, I'm trying to, I was trying to remember the reference to where it is, but Jesus says somewhere, says somewhere in the scriptures that, uh, that those that are instructed by him, I'm not quoting this exactly right, I'm afraid, but the gist of it is right, will bring out new treasures as well as old. He's talking about the fact that there are some things that have been put into us, that the teachings that others have had, the things we've, we've just sort of picked up through our, through our study, that's, that's the old stuff that's there. But when we've got the Spirit of God living in us, there's another thing as well. There are new treasures that God gives to us. It's all valuable, but a characteristic of the Christian life will be that we have new things, new treasures, insights, a wisdom that's come directly from heaven to us. We can expect him to speak in that way to us. In Joel chapter 2, which is quoted on the day of Pentecost, there's a promise from God where he says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. We don't have to nitpick over whether a dream is, an, is a sleeping thing and a vision is a daytime thing, or to try and say, well, old men sleep more than young men or whatever. You know, I'm happy, a daydream can count, I'm sure, and be a vision. It's just the fact that God promises to speak. What is um, special about God speaking to us through dreams is that we really do have our guards down. Uh, 
a dream is not an automatically spiritual thing, but God will use dreams to speak to us things that our conscious minds would uh, refuse. Sometimes the thinking that we've got in place already is so counter to what God wants to say to us that it really gets in the way. And those are often the times that God uses to, uses dreams to speak to us, leading to a more profound change in our thinking than just about anything else ever does. It's, it's a very deep thing that goes on in us. Now, I am blessed by always sleeping like a log. Sorry, those of you that aren't. Uh, I'm willing to pray for you um, with lots of faith because I, I, I just clock off like that and sleep through the night and it's, it's a joyous thing. Um, one, that means I am very, very, very rarely aware of my dreams. I read a book on brain chemistry and dreaming a few years ago. Those of you that know me won't be surprised by that. Uh, and there's something about the half-awake state that is important in transferring the dream experience into your conscious awareness. So it is very much dreams that you dream as you're waking that you remember, not dreams that you dreamed three hours ago that you've remembered and wake anyway. So I don't normally remember my dreams. A few years ago, I was at a leader's retreat and somebody prayed and said, this weekend, there are going to be people that don't normally get dreams from God. I just believe God's going to give some dreams this weekend. And he prayed for all of us. That night, I had an amazing dream. And uh, in this dream, I had a whole series of images that came to mind, which perfectly captured a number of occasions when I had been opposed in my evangelism by people and exposed truly what that had done to me and at the same time exposed truly God's perspective on all of it so that by the time I'd processed it over breakfast the next morning I was a changed man and all of my expectations of what would happen in the future were changed yeah, and um, I'd like to pray for you is that all right because I didn't turn up on that day with any expectation but someone had some faith to pray for it and something changed. It wasn't just that I had a dream, but my life was changed through that. So can I pray that? Um, okay. God, you're brilliant. Your, your love is amazing. And uh, thank you for this promise of scripture that we will prophesy and dream and see visions. It's not just a, a vague hope, it's a promise of scripture. And I pray that tonight would be different to other nights. I pray that you would brood over us, your people, in our sleep and speak to us. Lord, whether we're sound sleepers or light sleepers, whether we often remember dreams or don't, Lord, in the same way that a prophetic word intrudes into our own pattern of thinking, Lord, would your revelation intrude into our dreaming, I pray. It's not something, Lord, that we can even help you with here at all. It's just 
something we turn to you in utter dependence and say, Lord, would you please pour this gift out as part of transforming us more and more into the image of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if God does speak to you this week, you now have a responsibility to tell us about it next week. So I didn't tell you that. You're supposed to say the terms and conditions before, aren't you? It's a slight error of judgment. Um, but seriously, it would be great to do so, to hear what God's doing. And that leads me on, really, to the last point. In the story that we have here in Genesis 28, Jacob took the stone that he'd been sleeping on, his head on, and set it up as a memorial so that this encounter that he'd had would be remembered. I have to say that I think we have quite a bit, all of us have quite a bit to learn from this specific point. But it's very, very easy for what God has done to get forgotten. I don't know whether you've noticed that. When God heals us physically, that healing is normally experienced as an absence. It used to hurt, and now it doesn't. I don't know. Um, sometimes it seems like we, we, we wouldn't know how to testify to a healing unless it was a blind eye seeing or someone coming up out of a wheelchair, that we feel that something's shifted and something's changed, but actually it feels a bit vague. It's like that, because what God does uh, when he heals us is usually take away something and when it's not there anymore, we don't feel it. We don't feel anything about it anymore. Does this make sense? The dreams that God gives us in the night often vanish like mist by the time we get to mid-morning. If we want to capture what God says to us in our dreams, it would be a good idea to have a notepad by the bed or when we wake up in the morning to just take five minutes to make a record of it. Again, it's a quality of British culture that we don't like to overstate things. We don't like to talk things up, but just to allow the reality to speak for itself. And I guess there is some benefit in that. But the problem is that in avoiding overselling what God has done, we typically undersell what God has done and say less about God's activity than it deserves. Yeah? The reason that that's a problem is that we are in danger of dishonoring God. Now, it took Jacob another 20 years before he started tithing. But he saw something here that that would at least be the appropriate thing to do. There's a on encountering God, there's something about honoring him that arises naturally, but we can easily miss and just rush on with life. And we ought to do something a little bit more like this. 
Um, this is, this is, I asked Amber if this was okay. Uh, this is our oldest daughter, Amber, in uh, the cathedral at Reims in northern France, just given her heart to Jesus for the first time. We went into the cathedral. She lit a candle. We took a photo. I showed her this photo this morning, and she said, Oh, yes. That's, what ha- that's when, oh, yes, I met with God, didn't I? She'd forgotten. And actually, without these kinds of things that we can do to make the memory, it's very, very easy for what God has really done amongst us to be forgotten. And one of the joys for me, actually, in getting to preach is I get to tell my stories. You know, it gives me prompt to tell, tell the stories of what God's done in my life. It really strengthens my memory of what God's done for me and my faith that he's been at work in my life. Um, I was just remembering in our worship this morning, my 19th birthday was the day that the Toronto Blessing landed in Oxford. Uh, and I remember meeting with God profoundly, being unable to speak for quite a while, struck dumb by the presence of God, utterly changed. My whole way of thinking changed by an encounter with God that I'd not known was possible. I'm really going to surprise Bev now. Can you just tell people about angels in your bedroom when you were a kid? I was thinking about this earlier, actually. I didn't know he was going to say that, but... um... When I was about six, I used to, uh, well, my parents were pastors of a church, and they often um, released demons downstairs from other people. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's what you get if you're a pastor's daughter, I guess. It's part of the deal. But uh, <laughs> we don't do so much of that, a bit of that. But uh, I used to be very afraid, I guess. I knew God was there, but I was afraid. And... I remember one night just sitting up in bed and uh, the uh, room kind of expanded and all the walls kind of weren't there. They were there, but they weren't there. And I sat up in bed and, they, and it was like a carpet of flowers, of these sort of whitey yellow flowers, which is, just reminded me what you were saying earlier about the video and the flowers. And that there were, it was just like that, just carpets of these big flowers and in amongst the flowers were um, like angelic beings, lots of small ones and big ones, and just uh, standing really peacefully. And I just felt the presence of God, I guess. I just felt immense peace. And I woke my sister up and said, look, look at the angels, look, look at the flowers. And she went, oh, my word, and she could see them too. And it, it was it was incredible. And just occasionally it comes back to me, and it came back to me, just earlier, as Steve was saying about the lady who saw the flowers in heaven, so I think, you know, we, we can't explain these things. Uh, they're not written down exactly in the Bible, but it is definitely God doing something with us profoundly that is just for us in that moment. Yeah. Cool. Thanks. I'm sure we could keep going. I just um, thought it would be helpful to hear a voice other than just mine. Uh, it matters that we, this thing, memorializing... <laughs> It's a long word, but it matters that we do something to make memory of our encounters with God. We're going to be doing that over there in just a minute. I quite like this, though. There was a move of God amongst Marys in 
where are they? New Zealand. <laughs> there we go. This, this, this particular set of stories is from about 100 years ago. These are all of the things that people didn't need anymore when they were healed. You can see the wheelchair, 50 pairs of spectacles, 74 crutches, 181 walking sticks. Isn't this great? They memori- it would be very possible for this move of God to have happened and been forgotten. But they made a memory of what God had done, and it's exciting our faith today. So what we've got across the way there are the rocks that Maria dreamed of. And uh, because it's a corporate thing and not just a one of us, it makes more sense to have a number of rocks. Jacob set up his one rock. But what there are is there's a number of stamps that say on them words for different things. For, it was a stamp for obstacles overcome by the power of God. A stamp for physical healing. Another one for provision, for reconciliation. Those kinds of things. In a minute, we're going to sing some more songs of worship. But it, there's going to be time to go over and take a sec. This is how, what, it, what I'm asking for. If, since we began this series on encounter with God in early September, you have seen God do something like that in your life, wander over, take the stamp, and make your mark as a testimony to what God's done. We're going to keep that up there week on week as we go through this series on encountering God. And the canvas is going to fill up with more and more and more marks as a testimony to God's activity amongst us. And I know that these things are happening on the church website where we've got a list of uh, testimonies of things that God's been doing just in the last few weeks, well, maybe, mm, yeah, in recent weeks, maybe more than just a couple of weeks, but we've got two testimonies of emotional healing, three testimonies of obstacles overcome, three opportunities opened, five people testifying to physical healing, revelations and prophecy, nine testimonies of provision, four testimonies of reconciliation, things God has done amongst us just recently. This is happening as God is active amongst us, his people. And we wanted to take opportunity to make that more visible. The website's a good thing, but there's something about us together doing something corporately, hence this piece of artwork, which is going to fill up over the weeks as we make record of the fact that God has been amongst us.